Hello, and welcome back to the IG Notes podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to explore the work of journalists around the world. I'm Sophia with IGNet's parent organization, ICFJ. When discussing reproductive rights, focus is often placed solely on abortion access and legality. But what happens once a country legalizes abortion? How does that affect journalistic coverage on other aspects of reproductive rights? Ireland famously legalized abortion in 2018 after a more than 35-year-long movement to change their laws. Since then, international tension has largely moved on. Those in Ireland, however, have continued to fight for increased reproductive rights, from contraceptive access, to maternal care, to helping people more easily access abortions. To learn more about reproductive rights in Ireland, I spoke with Dr. Camilla Fitzsimmons, an activist academic at Maynooth University. She recently wrote a book titled Repealed, Ireland's Unfinished Fight for Reproductive Rights. We discussed the current situation of reproductive health care in Ireland, the importance of journalists' work in covering reproductive justice, and how journalists can work with activists. Thank you again so much for um, coming on IJ Notes. Uh, can you briefly explain the history of reproductive rights in Ireland, especially how abortion became legalized in a country where the Catholic Church, which does not approve of abortion, has historically had significant influence? Yeah, I mean, thanks, um, Sophie. It's a huge question, really, um, that really dates back to, I think, to talk about why we didn't have abortion first is, is the good place to start. So really, it dates back to the 1930s. Ireland would have become uh, independent from from uh, Britain, from the United Kingdom and Britain in the 1920s. And from the 1930s onwards, contraception was banned in Ireland. We had a very much a, a, a theocratic state where, you know, as you as you kind of alluded to, uh, the Catholic Church and the state were pretty much one and the same thing. So if it was against the laws of Catholicism, it was against the laws of the land as well. So that included contraception. So that was banned in 1935 and that ban wasn't lifted until 1979 and only lifted because of activists, because of court cases and pressure from uh, from below. But during that time, it's really important to say that there was, a, you know, a network of um, institutions of mother and baby's homes in Magdalen Laundries where Ireland's a small country with a small population. So these figures mightn't sound big to you, but over 100,000 women were imprisoned in these institutions throughout the 20th century. And that is a lot of people in Ireland. And that was where people became pregnant outside of marriage, often because of rape. So this was the kind of the country that Ireland was in the 1920s, and sorry, in the in the 20th century, a really very, very repressive Catholic regime where the role for women was to, to be at home and have lots of babies that was constitutionally recognized and still is to this day constitutionally recognized as the role that, that a woman is supposed to play in Irish society. So then you have the 60s, you have the women's movement, you have abortion being introduced into uh, Britain in 1967. You have a lot of changes happening around the world. And in 1983, Ireland introduces a really kind of iron fast, copper fastened ban on abortion into our constitution, voted in by the public in 1983. And this ban is 
directly linked to Roe v. Wade. And I think that's something that people often don't understand. Roe v. Wade happened, obviously, in 1973 because the right to privacy in the United States was extended to include the right to abortion. There was a very similar case happened in Ireland in 1973 where a woman called Mary McGee won a case against the Irish state which gave her the right to contraception through privacy. So it said she had the right to access contraception because of the right to a married couple to have privacy. So immediately the anti-abortion movement in Ireland saw what happened in the United States, saw this case in Ireland and went, oh my God, this could happen in Ireland. So a very small and dedicated group of right-wing activists influenced the Irish government to the extent that they held a referendum in 1983, the very low turnout, but where two-thirds majority of the country voted to insert a ban on abortion, which was more than just a ban on abortion. It was a clause that equated the life of a woman to the life of a fetus. Following the legalization of abortion um, in the referendum in 2018, uh, what are some of the continued barriers to reproductive access in Ireland? Yeah, and even before getting that, I think it's important to just say that the legalization or the removal of the ban, which is what happened in nineteen in in twenty eighteen, didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen because the government changed their mind. It happened because of a thirty five year long uh, grassroots movement of consistent pressure, of um, very large street mobilizations, of acts of civil disobedience, of a number of court cases of journalists um, reporting, and we can come back to this, breaking through kind of the silence and sharing stories of tragedy. So I think before we look at post-2018, it's important to say that 2018 only happened because of sustained pressure from below, which is very similar again to what happened in the United States with Roe v. Wade. People talk about one court case, but really Roe v. Wade happened in the context of what's sometimes called the abortion revolution in America, which was sustained pressure, groups like the Jane Collective in Chicago, and, you know, hundreds and thousands of people organizing. So sometimes what gets reported is the actual change in the, in the law. What's missing from that story is everything that happens to, to bring us to that point. It's not typically, or it hasn't historically been, liberal politicians going, oh, let's change the law. It has been pressure from from women's groups in particular that forces the law to change. So that's what happened in Ireland. Mm -hmm. 35 years of pressure, an eventual referendum as a result of pressure internationally, pressure domestically, but also the fact that with the advent of the abortion pill, the horse had already bolted in many ways. and, And this just was a situation that could not be contained anymore. And what was happening was the the cases and the way that the abortion ban was mostly having an impact was sick people in hospital. So Savita Halepanavar being the most well-known situation of somebody dying in a hospital because they were refused the right to an abortion. So we had this massive victory in 2018. We had huge celebrations and really a lot of optimism that Ireland would, would produce a very good quality law some good quality laws exist in other European countries. I mean, by the way, I don't think there should be any laws on abortion. It should be like any other healthcare procedure. But we do have a law in Ireland, but we have a very poor law in Ireland. 
which has a lot of ongoing restrictions. And they're best understood kind of under two categories. The first category is really the law itself. So in Ireland, we have a situation where abortion is still a criminal offence. So it is still against the law to have an abortion in Ireland outside of certain parameters. And those parameters are very strict. So the first parameter is that it's only allowed up to 12 weeks. And that 12 week cutoff comes down sharp. It's not like, oh, you missed it by a day. A medical abortion didn't work and you're now 13 weeks. It comes down sharp legally. If you were a day over 12 weeks, you cannot have an abortion in Ireland. And that 12 weeks includes what's called a pause period. So there's a three day wait period. So if you go to your GP on Monday, doesn't matter what your circumstances are, how absolutely sure you are of your decision. The GP cannot write your prescription. You have to go back three days later and they'll write you the prescription then. So that's before 12 weeks. After 12 weeks in Ireland, it is really, really difficult to get an abortion. Really difficult. The numbers are, are very, very low. And uh, many seven people a week or so still travel out of Ireland. And it's mostly people who are probably always people who are over that 12 weeks. So first of all, you can only have an abortion post 12 weeks if two doctors can certifiably guarantee that any baby that would be born would die uh, before 28 days. Now that's practically impossible to do, practically impossible to do. You also need two doctors to certify if uh, there's a risk to the mother's uh, or the woman's um, health or um, life. So what that means in reality is that you have this chill effect for doctors where they're trying to make these complex medical decisions and they need this additional legal loophole, which is just not necessary. The other problem with Irish law then is that we allow for conscientious objection. So this is where a doctor's or a doctor's right to um, refuse under moral grounds is given privilege over a person's right to have an abortion. So there are the problems with the law. The second major issue that we have in Ireland is its access. So uh, abortion care in Ireland is through general practitioners and only 10% of general practitioners have signed up to offer abortion care. And after nine weeks, because usually it's medical abortions up until nine weeks, and then after nine weeks, People are referred to maternity hospitals or units and only 12 out of 19 maternity hospitals or units are providing care. So this means you could have you know, you know, quite a distance geographically to travel. You might arrive somewhere and not even know if they provide services and you can only travel. And obviously, remember, you have to travel twice if it's pre-12 weeks. You can only do that if you have money. If you have the freedom to do that, so sometimes people don't have freedom because they're in a coercive relationship. Sometimes they don't have freedom because they've just got too many care loads, too much, you know, too many kids, other kids to mind, too too many things that stop them being able to get away. Sometimes people may have difficulty traveling because uh, they're disabled. So the people who are most impacted by these restrictions are the same people who are most impacted by the Eighth Amendment when it was in place. You mentioned um, in like the lead up where there was um, a lot of like activism and civil disobedience that journalists had a role in um, ultimately helping change the laws. Could you talk a bit more about that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the most obvious example is that Savita Halapanavar was the person who broke the story. Excuse me, Kitty Holland, the journalist, was the person who broke the story when Savita Halapanavar died. So there may have been other women also. We know about this case because her family had the courage to come forward and because Kitty Kitty Holland, as a journalist, had the interest and the courage to print the story. So I think... She is one of a number of journalists who played a key role throughout that 35-year ban on abortion in, in breaking through the silence. And Justin McCarthy is somebody else. Fintan O'Toole is somebody else who would have written about that kind of imprisonment of women that I spoke about earlier. So I think we really cannot underestimate the role that journalists played in keeping the issue on the agenda, repeatedly reporting on, on um There was a number of cases to the European Court of Human Rights. Journalists took that on and reported them. And there were other journalists also who, even when there wasn't a particular kind of, you know, tragedy or a particular event, who still regularly reported on the fact that 15 women were traveling from Ireland every day to access abortion uh, while that ban was in place. So they were very much a part of the movement that repealed the Eighth Amendment. I mean, obviously, there would have been, you know, the counterside in that there'll always be journalists who will write from the other perspective. But certainly in Ireland, it was much more a case that the majority of um, media interest and media coverage was in favour of lifting the ban on abortion. So people like Kitty Holland, Justin McCarthy, and more recently, somebody like Elena Lachlan in, in um, the Irish Examiner has um, published a lot about the access of the lack of legislation on safe access zones, which is something that was promised in 2018 that we're still waiting for. So to this day, journalists continue to play an important role. Besides just abortion access, how has other access to other parts of um, reproductive health care changed? Um, so, for example, contraceptive access, prenatal care. Yeah, I mean, I think contraceptive ac- access has improved. So we now have a um, limited amount of free contraception, which is at the moment just for uh, younger people. I think it's 18 to 25 year olds. So apparently you don't have sex if you're over 25 in Ireland. But there you go. Um, that has been rolled out. It is patchy still. Um, I think, though, in terms of what isn't reported or what isn't looked like and maybe where journalists can do more is to look at a much kind of broader picture of reproductive rights. So, for example, uh, you know, if we want to look at maternity care, I think we should always start with the fact that, you know, there's real issues with ethnic minority women dying in maternity hospitals. And that's happening in Ireland as much as everywhere else. We have a much higher incidence of maternal deaths for for migrant women, for black and brown women in particular. And this isn't something that has caught hold of the attention of journalists to the extent that that I think it should have. I was involved in research on the um, treatment of Muslim women in Irish hospitals, which was published uh, in 2021 with the press release, uh, but there was very little interest. There was one article in, in one paper about it, but very little interest beyond that. So if we could get the same momentum around kind of ongoing failures in maternity care, particularly for ethnic minorities, I think perhaps that could could make a difference there. Um, 
I think that for me, that's probably the most important thing. So if you were to pick one thing, I mean, you know, um, migrant women are dying in Irish hospitals and there's just not enough being done about it or said about it, other than when another woman dies, it break, it hits the headlines. Uh, we now have introduced a system where there is a mandatory uh, inquests for um, maternal deaths, which wasn't happening up until quite recently. So for me, I've kind of forgotten the question, but I think that is certainly the biggest thing that I would like to see journalists um, focus on more. But also beyond that, and think about that kind of reproductive justice um, lens in that, you know, some of the biggest reasons why people are unable to have children is because they don't have somewhere decent to live, because they don't have the right amount of income to support more children, because they're so overburdened with care loads already. So I think, you know, part of our understanding of reproductive rights has to be that people have a decent standard of living where they can choose to have or not to have children and where they can parent those children and how they choose and in safety. So safety from you know, state coercion, safety from environmental destruction. I know these are big ideas, but I do think that they have to be part of our thinking. I'm, I'm involved in an organization called Academics for Reproductive Justice. We have a um, huge housing crisis, housing and homelessness crisis in Ireland. And we uh, wrote to the Irish Examiner, a national newspaper here who published an, a letter signed by many academics across the country which linked Ireland's housing crisis with people's capacity to have and raise children. And I think th these are the connections that we need to be making more often. Are there any like specific methods or resources that you would recommend to journalists to find kind of these story ideas that you've described? Yeah, I mean, be part of the movement. I think that's that's the biggest thing, isn't it? Don't uh, Don't wait for the stories to come to you. Don't sit in you know, in, in offices or in, um, in, in homes, you know, come out onto the streets, come to the demonstrations, talk to people, meet people, um, seek out the, the groups and organizations that aren't listened to. So people often say, for example, that during Ireland's, you know, very repressive period in the 20th century that, you know, everybody was complicit because nobody said anything. I don't accept that. Lots of people were saying things, they just weren't being listened to. And that's happening today as well. Lots of um, black feminist organizations are, are really raising the flag about maternal deaths, but it's not being listened to, it's not being reported. So I think what journalists need to do is get out into the heart of the movement, see themselves as a, you know part of that change mechanism, but also, you know, be that listening ear, be the people that, you know, goes to migrant-led organizations. We have an organization in Ireland called Merge, which was emerged in 2018, which was led by migrant and ethnic minority women. So put them center of the story, you know, give over columns, let them write their, write their own articles and, and create the space to publish um, their voice, I think is something that, that journalists can do more. But I also think academics need to get their work out from behind paywalls and they need to maybe do more of this um, sort of thing, you know, because uh, academia is is a business and a game as well. And 
you know, I can write a fantastic article about the Irish repeal movement, and that can be behind a paywall, which means that only people who are students with the money to pay very high university fees have access to those articles. So it, it goes, there's, there's lots of ways, not all on journalists, I think, to, to do things a little bit differently. What takeaways can journalists based in other countries learn from Ireland's reproductive rights movement? Keep the pressure on. Don't stop. Keep the pressure on. Keep the pressure on. There were times during that 35 year period where there were, you know, it ebbed and flowed. There were times in, in where there could have been quite a long period of time where nothing was being said about it. And it was sometimes uh, the voice of a journalist that broke through that silence. So keep the pressure on. You never, ever would think today in Ireland that in 50 years time we could have another constitutional ban on abortion. But I bet you nobody thought in 1973 that that row would be overturned in the United States. So I think we really have to just keep going, keep making this a news story, um, which isn't always easy because, you know, editorial boardrooms want clicks. They want things that are going to get sold. And that's not necessarily, this isn't necessarily the thing that's going to get those, those clicks depends on whether or not you can obviously, you know, another big part of the story in Ireland was, um, you know, high profile celebrities being involved. So obviously Sinead O'Connor, who passed away very recently, was a big part of the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, was very um, visibly and vocally part of that movement. And she would have been one of a number of celebrities that definitely helped to keep the issue on the agenda so that the people, those people that I spoke about earlier who are most impacted, whose voices aren't heard and who are furthest away from care so that their lives may be, you know, impacted in some way for the better. Do you have any advice for journalists who are trying to convince their editors to write these stories that aren't as appealing um, to like audiences? It must be very difficult. It really must be difficult. Maybe that's where you do need a a Julia Roberts or somebody on your side to, to highlight it. But I mean, there have been, you know, and it is, isn't it? It's about finding that angle because it's it's a real balance, even with my own work, because obviously I, I published a book after the, the repeal movement. And even I found that sometimes the, the thirst was for the salacious story. So people would be asking me, what were the what were the splits in the movement or what were the because they want that kind of juicy um juicy story to to hook people in and I think the other thing that can happen is that they want those stories of tragedy so you know people are asked to 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 retell and retell their their own situations which I don't think is necessarily has to happen anymore we know enough now we can create composites we don't have to always ask the same people to to tell their stories so I don't really have an answer to that I think just again I'm a big firm believer in collective action. So, you know, use use your um use your trade unions. If there's, you know, we would have quite a good trade union in Ireland for journalists who, you know, use collective action, you know, get a group of journalists together to to push the story because I imagine it is it is a lonely road if it's one person. And obviously journalism, like many other things, is it's so much about um 
kind of stringer contracts now as opposed to you know decent paid employment where in the past people would have had much more control over what they you know could and couldn't write and there was I guess more scope for opinion pieces I mean now very often for journalists it's you know it's the quality of the article that gets the 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 few quid and not a regular salary that allows people to do the sort of investigative journalism that someone like Kitty Holland um, undertook to to break the the story of Savita Halepinavar's death that made such a such a difference in Ireland. So yeah, maybe you need to. I don't know what the situation is like in in, in where you are, but I think you know journalists in general. We need to fight for 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 proper terms and conditions of employment so that people can have the freedom to do good quality investigative journalism. Thank you for listening to IJ Notes. Once again, I'm Sophia Hartney with ICFJ. Follow IJ Now on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about our new episodes when they are published.